afternoon or evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the mTOR You Know podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly Gehring. And this is Eileen Chi. Today we will be discussing a heavy topic, immunosuppression in the setting of obesity. And as we know, obesity is definitely quite prevalent in our country and also our patient population. It often goes kind of hand in hand with some of the most common pre-transplant disease state. The drug dosing in patients affected in obesity has been like a hot topic across all of pharmacy practice specialties, especially because of their altered PK profiles and many other relevant variables. However, Though many studies have employed BMI cutoffs in the inclusion or exclusion criteria, often it leaves practitioners with limited data on proper dosing in these individuals. Thankfully, today we are joined by two experts in the field, Drs. Nicole Pilch and David Salerno, to help broaden our knowledge on this topic through our next installment of our clinical debate series. So please join us as we welcome our panelists. Dr. Pilch received her Doctor of Pharmacy degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and completed both a PGY-1 practice residency and a PGY-2 critical care residency at the Medical University of South Carolina Medical Center. Following residency training, Dr. Pilch also completed a fellowship in solid organ transplant clinical research and a Master's of Science from the University of Cincinnati. She is currently a senior clinical content consultant in the areas of hepatology, gastroenterology, and solid organ transplant for Walters Kluwer up-to-date Lexi drugs. She has been fortunate enough to serve along several clinical experts as a senior associate for AGHP, transplant BPS board member aiding in the construction of the inaugural BPS exam, member of the inaugural American Transplant Society Pharmacist Community of Practice Executive Board, member at large UNOS MPSC, and numerous other national leadership positions. She has served as a residency program director for six years between the PGY-1 pharmacy practice and PGY-2 solid organ transplant residencies at MUSC and remained at the bedside taking care of solid organ transplant patients for over 15 years and served as a primary investigator for several clinical trials and published over 80 peer-reviewed articles. More recently, from 2015 to 2021, she served as the Director of Quality and Compliance for the MUSC Transplant Service Line and System Quality Director before transitioning to Walters Kluwer in January of 2022. Dr. Salerno graduated with his PharmD from Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, before completing postgraduate residency training at Hackensack University Medical Center and specialized residency training in solid organ transplant at New York Presbyterian Hospital. For the past eight years, he has worked as a clinical pharmacy manager in liver transplantation at New York Presbyterian Hospital in Weill Cornell. His research interests include drug disposition and drug-drug interactions and he has authored more than 80 peer-reviewed abstracts and publications, including several book chapters of transplant pharmacotherapy. And without further ado, we'll move on to some of our propositions for our heavy hitter debate. With our first proposition, in obese patients, ideal body weight or 
actual body weight offers the most accurate representation of the PK characteristic relevant to dosing of immunosuppressants. And what we're going to start off with is going to be for tacrolimus. And Dave, Nicole, if you don't mind introducing yourselves, your stance, and what experience had brought to you to your stance. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is David Salerno. I'm a liver transplant pharmacist at New York Presbyterian Hospital at Cornell. I think that my general stance for this debate is going to be talking about how actual body weight should be utilized for each of the different dosing classes that we're going to talk about, and maybe even providing some of the counter arguments for some of the things that Nicole is going to be um, speaking to as well. In general, when I talk about TACRO, I generally think that we kind of start with like the PK parameters of the drug. It's a fairly lipophilic drug. I think, you know, depending on the reference you look up, the log P of TACRO is like, you know, somewhere right in the range of three. So I think that it makes sense from like a pharmacokinetic standpoint that, you know, we think about dosing based on actual body weight. And that's something that, you know, was largely reviewed or, you know, largely included in a lot of the clinical trials for, for TACRO in, you know, in, in the early 90s, dose finding studies. Hey, and thanks for having me as well. Uh, this is Nicole Pilch. I definitely agree with Dave on some of those points. I will just point out that, you know, when those studies were done, I think that the weights that were used in those patient populations were a lot different, right? So our patients back in the dose finding studies and the original approvals were more closer to their ideal or adjusted body weights versus what we have today. So I think it's a conundrum that we continue to look at in our patient populations. Just kind of thinking back about the pharmacokinetics back in the day when we looked at our dose finding studies specifically with tacrolimus, I think the nice thing about tacrolimus or FK506 for everybody who's a little bit older on the podcast listening, the C0 value had a, a decent R squared to be able to see what the area under the curve is versus cyclosporin. And so uh, again, back to ideal and um, actual body weight, we don't have to shoot the moon right off the bat, right? So we could use potentially a lower dose because we've got really good PK parameters to adjust based on that. We also know it's pretty protein bound. So once we fill up the tank, we're kind of there. So that's where my big argument for more so adjusted versus ideal body weight, unless somebody is really close to their ideal body weight. But, you know, let me hear your arguments. Those are all really good points. And I'll sort of concede to the fact that, you know, in practicing in liver transplant, it's very complicated to know the total body weight versus the dry weight of an end-stage cirrhotic patient with ascites. So that makes it very difficult in order to determine, well, what would be their weight-based dose if we were even going to use actual to begin with. And there's a lot of fluctuations that occur kind of in the immediate post-transplant period with both kidney transplant you know, liver transplant recipients, as well as the other organs as well, in terms of overall volume and fluid status. So those are all very good points. And I, I can definitely see, you know, where that makes it complicated. I think the way in which this was originally studied is such that we're trying to get to therapeutic as quickly as possible. And I think, you know, even if you look at some of the more recent papers with Invarthus, those dose finding studies trying to tag whether or not it's best to dose based on ideal body weight, adjusted body weight, or actual body weight, a lot of the C statistics for correlations are pretty similar amongst the three groups. Like I know the group here at Columbia looked at our paper of empiric and varsis dosing for recipients. And I'll concede that we found that best sort of correlated with ideal body weight in terms of the starting dose. Uh, one of the things that we're still trying to tweak right now is that 
the first couple of levels seem to be a little bit lower than therapeutic, and it's making the prescribers, the, the physician group, a little bit nervous, and we need to come to some sort of compromise. You know, making sure that we're not having too many super therapeutic values using actual body weight, but maybe you know, not underdosing with ideal body weight, forcing us to make too many adjustments too quickly. I'll concede with those findings for sure. And I will admit that depending on what else the patient is on and depending on their risk of rejection, you know, if they have infections, that type of thing, if the team wants to reduce their adjunctive agent, I may use some actual body weight dosing for folks at home who aren't seeing me. You know, I'm a bit old school where I sometimes will put the thumb in the air by the patient and think what dose should be for them. And sometimes that's closer to ideal or adjusted body weight. Sometimes that's closer to actual body weight. Again, if they got an appropriate body weight pre or post OR, depends if they got that bed weight or not, you know, how much more I'll be able to use to sort of drive the team. So I definitely agree with that. But Inversus is a really good point. And I think that we've also found in our patient population that conversion to Invarsis, we have to sort of round down, especially with converting patients post-transplant because we seem to overshoot a bit more. And that probably has to do a bit with the absorption profile and the area under the curve being a little bit more predictable in those patient populations and sort of being able to fill up the tank a little bit more. I will point out the other place where I'll concede your argument to more of an actual body weight is definitely in our African-American patient population, where we know that there's more CYP-P450 polymorphisms. We've had several occasions, especially in some young African-American patients, male patients who tend to require big doses. And we've had to go to TID dosing and use Invarsis a little bit more generously in those patient populations. So those are the other folks that I definitely would concede to your argument a little bit more frequently. Yeah, and just to sort of add to that, there's really a lot of variables that go into the equation, I think, of trying to come up with, well, what is the optimal TACRO dose for these patients? You brought up an excellent point about cyp polymorphisms. There's a lot of things that I think, you know, and even the papers that have been published that are looking at dosing based on various body weights, there's always going to be things that are unaccounted for in those studies. And I think one of the major things there is the cyp polymorphisms patient's race and ethnicity and, and things that we were just not able to fully account for in determining what is the most optimal strategy. Because even we've seen at our own center here, we've made some tweaks to what the starting dose is over time, but we still never sort of quite achieve exactly what we're looking for. And as we like make a tweak and look back at hundred patients, make a tweak and look back at hundred patients, it's, you know, there's still something that's kind of missing in trying to achieve an optimal therapeutic dose, you know, an optimal therapeutic level immediately. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And even, you know, I know the Alloway study from the FDA suggested that there is no difference in pharmacokinetics between several of the generic products to the trade product for ProGraph. But I will say in practice, when we've switched to different generics, we have sort of a rash of differences in levels. And so I think folks really need to be careful with that too, when you're switching agents. And then there's always that, you know, sneaky thing that comes in over the weekend where the patient was on DILT and oops, we didn't realize that they were on DILT or we started the fluconazole. So obviously all those drug interactions sort of play to your favor or not and help things. Hopefully that's the rationale why we're at the bedside helping coach those teams to remember all of the variables, as you said. Dave, to take into consideration when figuring out what to do. But I agree with you. I think that it's unfortunately not a cut and dry, use ideal body weight or adjusted body weight versus actual body weight. And it's, um, this might be just one of those, shoot, we got to go patient to patient scenario. 
Yeah, so I know I'm the actual body weight guy, but kind of in real life, the way this all comes together, you know, at least in my practice, you know, at Cornell, we actually start a flat dose of sacro, two milligrams BID of the IR attack. At Columbia, they do something a little bit differently. They start with Invarsis at 0.12 milligrams per kilogram based off of ideal body weight. And like I said, we've been kind of tweaking these things a lot over time. In the liver transplant practice, we are very worried about brains and kidneys. So we are a little bit more conservative when starting. So usually people are starting on like one milligram BID or two milligrams BID. We do make the consideration of what their actual body weight is. I mean, we're trying to choose between one and two, but ultimately we're not talking about getting the therapeutic on day three. We're a little bit slower on the Delta to get there to monitoring the patient's clinical status. Yeah, I agree with you. And in real life, we sort of had the same approach in practice where we were doing flat dosing specifically in kidney. We would do kind of the two milligrams for our Caucasian patients, four milligrams twice a day for our African-American patients. And then over on the liver side, it was same thing, sort of the sprinkling of tacrolimus because we were worried about the brain and the kidneys. And then on the cardiothoracic side, especially on the lung transplant side, it'd be a sprinkling of tacrolimus because they typically were on some type of antifungal that had a big interaction and they always had kidney issues. And so we would, with that suspension, give a little bit like a 0.25 or even a little bit higher depending on their risk and same with cardiac transplant. But I think as you kind of stated, gone are the days back when tacrolimus first came out and we were shooting for levels around 15. I think we know a little bit better that we probably don't need to do that as much. And so I don't know about you, but we're trying to get to those levels around six to eight, but we weren't shooting the moon up to 10 to 12 like we did even in the recent past. So much lower targets with the concurrent immunosuppression, especially if we're doing T-cell induction. That's been pretty much the goal for each of the different centers. We have kind of a slightly different target, but typically eight to 10 in that first week. And I think over time, we've been talking about one of our other favorites, which we'll discuss, I guess, a little bit later, thymoglobulin in terms of like you know, how much and, you know, how many doses and, and, and those sorts of things, but trying to get people to eight to 10 as quickly as possible for both kidney and liver. But again, with the livers, we go a little bit more slow purposely. I think this is definitely turning out to be quite a friendly scrimmage with both really agreeing with one another as well too, but at the same time, definitely agree with the both of you that it's definitely very much not only center-based, induction-based, but also a lot of it is patient-specific based, especially with the SIPs and the various different products that we have. So moving on to the next. Yeah, I agree. Tacrolimus and transplant pharmacists is certainly an age-old romance, so Thank you for those valuable points. Our next drug is going to be our trusty sidekick, mycophenolate. Should we be considering a dose adjustment in those patients with obesity? So I guess I could go first again. Mycophenolate is interesting in the sense that it's like 80 to 90% protein bound. So you think that, you know, most of this is going to stay within an intravascular compartment, but then again, the volume of distribution is actually quite high. So there may be some room here for patients that are obese might need to have a little bit more on board. And I think, you know, it's complicated in the sense because, and I don't know about you, Nicole, but I took, you know, when I trained and the way I practice, we don't even really think about mycophenolate in terms of weight-based dosing. We kind of use fixed dosing. So to me, it's almost like the real debate here is kind of layered. You know, the first layer is, should we be using fixed versus weight-based doses? And then if you're interested in weight-based dosing, what weight would you choose? 
Yeah, I think this is, like you said, also a tough one, but I think we have sort of the same learning curve that maybe we did with Trichrolimus over time here that probably less is more in a lot of scenarios. I think that we found in our patient population that we were having specifically in our kidney population and in our liver population, when we were using it for renal sparing, that we had an excessive amount of infections. So viral infections, BK virus, that type of thing. And we really linked it back to not only running our tacrolimus a bit too high, but just overall exposure to MMF and MPA. And so reducing the amount in the setting of modern immunosuppression and monitoring, especially since we've got a better idea of how to detect rejection and a little bit better understanding of some of the things in the pathology lab that we've actually showed that a reduced dose is probably beneficial. And so we've actually dropped in a lot of our patient populations, specifically kidney and liver. So for liver, it's 500 twice a day. And for kidney, it's 750 twice a day, which I would suggest from a debate perspective is closer to an ideal or a just body weight, just to take the gloves off a little bit, you know, and mix it up. But this comes back to that concurrent therapy type of scenario, especially knowing what the patient's history is, you know, repeat transplant exposure. But I think we definitely, at least at our center, had approached the reduction in dose in some cases now. Some patients will prove us wrong and break through with a bit of rejection, but less is more here into your kind of volume of distribution question. I definitely agree with you there. And since we know that MPA and the glucuronide is the glucuronide tends to kick off the free MPA off of the albumin and it gets preferentially excreted, you actually in delay graft function or a kidney insufficiency, you get more of that free fraction or the active drug getting excreted and more of the inactive drug around, which can become a scenario. So definitely in those type of patient populations, you know, it's a debate how much much immunosuppressive effect does that renal function really have versus you getting rid of active drugs? So I'll drop the mic there and shoot it over to you and see what your thoughts are. Yeah, shots fired. You know, that, those are really good points. And I think when you kind of take a survey of the literature, there was a couple of papers. There was one from Yao in 2007 and then Yamada in 2016 that both kind of looked at, you know, it's kind of the same thing that you're talking about here, I think, where in this case, they're looking at sampling strategies for the first several hours post-dose. And what they were finding is that lower body weight tends to have the higher AUC to dose ratio than those with a higher body weight. So in both of those strategies, what they basically came up with is that somewhere between 10 to 16 milligrams per kilogram or 12 milligrams per kilogram in the Yao paper was basically, you know, that's the number that you need in order to achieve an AUC that's between 30 and 60. And I think that that's kind of like hammering down on your point of, although they're kind of suggesting that in terms of actual body weight, it actually also sort of perfectly aligns with, you know, if the patients are a little bit more closer to their ideal weight, you might need to utilize less of the drug. There was also a newer paper that came out this year from Mahoney and colleagues, and they kind of furthered this conversation. I'm not just looking at like, well, what does a weight-based dose have to deal with, you know, specifically the AUC, but if we stratify patients into different weight-based doses, so like, you know, they took patients that were greater than 80 kilograms, they got 1,000 BID, anybody between 50 and 79 kilograms, they got 750 BID, and patients that were less than 50 kilograms got 500 BID. They were trying to figure out, well, do any of these sort of dose stratification correlate with clinical outcomes, things that we care about, not just the area under the curve that you may or may not be checking. So they didn't find any differences in BPAR infection or hospitalization. So then they kind of proposed that, you know, hey, a weight-based strategy is probably what we need to do. And I think, you know, one of the things that's sort of missing from all of these papers then is it would have been nice to have a little bit of a drill down of, well, what was like the average weight of the patients in the studies? And then further, what was the percentage of obese patients? Because, you know, maybe that would have been some of the nuance that we need in order to make various 
dosing strategies based on weight. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think to dovetail onto that, you know, the Lee paperback from 2014 also looked at Asian patient populations and demonstrated that they really did need a reduced dose to decrease the risk of adverse effects associated with it without increasing the risk of rejection. So there are definitely some patient populations and subpopulations out there to help us. I think one thing also that I would love to see in the data, and I think we've seen it in a few abstracts throughout ATC over the past few years and from some of the pharmacy groups around the country is, you know, how many patients that we start on a fixed dose end up at what dose at six months, right? So the amount of adjustment that is required for opportunistic infections or for leukopenia or those type of things, I think would be very interesting to see if we could do any type of prediction for that. But as you stated, these patient populations are so variable with the risk factors that are coming in with them, along with any type of things going on in their surgery or in the post-operative period of time. But again, I stand by my sort of, you know, if I had to err, if you had to pin me down, I would probably go more of an adjusted ideal body weight scenario. I think a little less is more for this case. I'm not in the business of losing here, but I think I would lean in that direction also. I've also long thought about the question that you're asking of, if you could look at MMF doses over time and like the research part of this that's complicated is how do you, is, is it cumulative dose over a period of six months or a year? Is it number of missed doses or dose reductions? Like there's a lot of things and a lot of data charts that would need to be sort of dug through in order to like answer that question of, you know, what is the cumulative exposure and what does it have to do with infection or tolerability, diarrhea, nausea, that sort of thing. So those are hard questions, I think, to answer. And certainly coming from the liver transplant perspective, we are pretty quick in terms of cytopenias to drop the MMF either to half dose or off, and depending on what the liver tests are doing, you know, respond accordingly. So I think maybe in that regard, there's a little bit of an unfair advantage versus if you practice in kidney or heart or lung transplant. Yeah, I definitely agree, Dave. And I would also say one thing that I also kind of saw over the past few years with the opioid epidemic and our goal to reduce opioid use, especially in our patient populations post-transplant for pain control, that when we got rid of the opioids and did opioid sparing regimens, all of a sudden we had a whole bunch more diarrhea with mycophenolic and MPA products. So just as a learning point for the team, you know, one thing that we learned in our patient population when we got rid of the opioids in kidney, we forgot to get rid of our standing senna. So definitely get rid of the standing senna if you get rid of the opioids, because otherwise the cellcept, bad news, and you'll be reducing your doses a lot. So just thought I'd throw that in there as a little fun fact with changes in, in practice over time. All right. I think now we're heading into definite muddy waters with our next question. And I'm sure this is going to stir up a lot of controversy, as I know everyone does it differently. And it's the age-long question of thymo, ideal body weight versus actual body weight. And I will let the experts duke it out. Nicole, you want you to want, take this one first or should I? I was going to say, going? do you want to drop the gauntlet or should I? All right, I, I will do it. 
yeah. So ideal body weight all the way here with thymoglobulin. So we know that this is a antibody. It's polyclonal. It stays in the intracellular space. You have a limited number of cells that it affects. So definitely, I think based on, you know, the distribution of the drug, that ideal body weight is the way to go. I think we have more and more literature out there. We've got the Pennington group. We've got the VACA group in 2016. Kind of over the past 10 years, every year we've got a new outcome analysis looking at using ideal body weight versus historical cohorts of actual body weight demonstrating that there's really no difference and a pretty substantial cost savings, especially if you can drive some of that usage to outpatient as well. And so I think that in general, by using ideal body weight, you decrease the overall risk of exposure. You know, we know historically that anything greater than six milligrams per kilogram of actual body weight contributes to a higher risk of malignancy and long-term opportunistic infections and that type of thing. So I definitely am an ideal body weight person on this one. I think we've in our own center switched to ideal body weight, showed substantial cost savings, reduced our level of BK specifically in the kidney population and have not had any change in our outcomes across our organ groups by using the ideal body weight rounded to the nearest 25 milligram file. Just saying. Wow. This one, I'm not totally sold on. And, you know, I think the vodka, the Bubik, the Pennington papers, they all suggest that ideal body weight dosing is okay. But I think this is a really complicated question to answer retrospectively. And I think it's likely one that's not going to be performed prospectively. So we're sort of stuck with, you know, 100 patients here, 150 patients there. Demetra, my mentor, when I, you know, this was, you know, greater than 10 years ago at this point. But when we looked at the data specifically for the Columbia population in her paper that was in transplantation, we did find that small changes due to dose rounding rules could have a significant impact on biopsy-proven acute rejection. So at Columbia, they're doing thymoglobulin 1.5 milligrams per kilogram times four doses, and they were doing it based on total body weight, but based on the rounding rule, some people were getting closer to five versus six milligrams per kilogram. And in the steroid avoidance center, they did find that there was higher risk of biopsy-proven acute rejection in the patients that had the dose rounding a little bit lower. So at Columbia, for example, they use actual body weight dosing. At Cornell, they kind of moved to ideal body weight dosing, and then they have some analysis that hasn't yet come out yet. But I think one of the things that's complicated is when they switched to ideal body weight, it was during the COVID pandemic. There were a lot of things that we were doing differently. They actually started giving not only just ideal body weight dosing, but they were giving a little bit less, you know, targeting 4.5 milligrams per kilogram in some patients. So it's a very complicated analysis to just sort of look at on the surface, because I think there's a lot of moving parts and things that get decided during that index hospitalization, how quickly you get therapeutic on your TACRO and, you know, all the other maintenance drugs that you're using that make this a really complicated question. All right, Dave, I'll concede a bit there that yes, I think you definitely need to get therapeutic on your tacrolimus early on if you're going to use ideal body weight. So you can't sort of tiptoe through the tulips here and wait to get therapeutic. Then you may not be able to delay CNI as long, especially if you're using that as a strategy in some of your non-renal organ transplants that you got to be a little bit more cautious. And you bring up a good argument with early corticosteroid withdrawal. I think you're right that probably the jury is still out on how much you need to use and if you're going to get therapeutic. If, if you're not therapeutic by the time that you stop the steroids, if you're doing early corticosteroid withdrawal, then you tend to put your patient at risk for rejection for sure. But I would say I agree, and this is retrospective data. 
good point there too. That's hard to show outcomes. And I agree that I don't think that we're going to get any studies to show this prospectively ideal versus actual body weight dosing. And I definitely don't think any company would have incentive to give less of the drug, uh, you know, bummer. But I do challenge you and say, definitely with those early outcomes of one year or six months, big change. But I hope our transplant community will look at those cumulative doses and take a look at the long-term outcomes of exposure. Because I think, you know, the days of having one-year acute rejection rates are sort of maybe uh, more historic, and we should find some newer sort of patient reported outcomes long-term to see if a reduction in this baseline immunosuppression is beneficial. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think we're always so conditioned to think about one-year outcome or three-year outcome and rejection and graft survival. And But really, there's a lot of things that sort of go into the patient's quality of life, and nobody wants to be admitted to the hospital for CMV and all kinds of viral infections and those sorts of things. So I, I can definitely appreciate your sentiment from that perspective. You know, the package insert kind of just suggests actual body weight. And like, when I look at papers that you had brought up previously, it's like, Everybody's always sort of talking about the difference between actual and, you know, whether you use ideal or adjusted body weight in terms of like milligram per kilogram, it's like usually one to 1.5, which, you know, depending on the weight of the patient might work out to be like a difference of, you know, 50 to 75 milligrams or hundred milligrams or something like that. Uh, so certainly from a cost perspective, I could see the allure from it, but I'm a little hesitant to make the move as like a global recommendation for everybody. But I think a lot of these centers are doing really great work where you're looking at your patient population in the background of your maintenance immunosuppression regimen. I think it makes a lot of sense to sort of say, hey, you know what, we might even try this in a specific select patient population and then kind of reassess those outcomes at six months or a year from now, just to sort of figure out like, hey, is there a pathway forward in order to do ideal or does it just have to be actionable all the time and, and no questions asked? Yeah, that is a true statement. And you made a good point too about, you know, where does the weight come from? Are these anesthesia weights? Are these preoperative weights? Are these weights after they get resuscitated in the operating room or in our cardiothoracic transplant candidates? Is this a weight that we're taking in a few days later? So I agree. I think that's a good point for centers that are studying this with their own internal protocols is they really need to be consistent with how they find which weight they're going to use and then look at their outcomes associated with that. Because I agree that if you have that patient who's coming in and this is their dialysis day, they didn't get dialysis, they're up three or four kilos, is that the weight you should use? You know, So I think there definitely has to be a judgment call when it comes to that. But I'll, again, push for those long-term outcomes to see if a reduction in exposure to depleting antibodies is a good thing in the long run. So you guys are bringing up steroid withdrawal, which goes hand-in-hand with thymodosing. At this point, I'd like to throw out a shameless plug for the first installment of the mTOR You Know's clinical debate series, our episode, Roy G. Rather, from February 2022. The next drug that we're moving on to is personally one of my favorite topics at this time, and honestly, the name itself could start a debate, but Belotacept or Belotacept. Where do we stand on the proper dosing weight to use for this one? You know, I'm an ideal body weight one on this one. If I had to debate it, just looking at the mechanism of action of the drug, it should stay in the vasculature. It should act on the cell. 
If we look at some of the early studies, the average weights were, you know, not in the overweight range or didn't have BMIs of greater than 30. But I will concede to my colleague here that this is going to be a tough one for me to have a lot of data to support using an adjusted or ideal body weight. So I'm going to kick it over to Dave and see if he can give me anything to chew on that I can push back on. But I had a hard time really finding a lot of literature to say, yes, ideal, and even maybe adjusted for this scenario. Yeah, this one, I'm actually pretty hotly wanting people to utilize actual body weight. I feel pretty strongly about this one. I agree with you that from like a pure pharmacokinetic standpoint, it seems to make sense that you probably could get away with ideal body weight, but there's really a couple of things that bother me about this one that makes me think that actual is the right thing to do here. The package insert makes reference to a, a population PK analysis that reveals a higher rate of palatocept clearance with increasing body weight. It's really not clear. And even if you look at the summary review in the FDA, like, well, why would an obese patient have a higher clearance of the drug? You know, what are the issues there? And I think part of the problem is that we don't really know the answer to that. You know, could it be an upregulation of the reticuloendothelial system? And there's some papers that sort of point to that RES is the problem that, you know, the activity is higher in obese patients. There's some groups that we're looking at neutralizing antipalatocept antibodies. You know, does that occur more frequently in obese patients? And there's a paper by Shen and colleagues that says, well, no, that's probably not the case. There doesn't seem to be any increased risk of antipalatocept neutralizing antibodies in obese patients versus non-obese patients. And I think, you know, even if you look at the data in the benefit trial and the best trial, the majority of the rejections were occurring early. So I think that that's kind of argues against the point of an antipalatocept neutralizing antibody. You know, is it that reduced palatocept serum concentrations exist secondary to like the rate of clearance? Like, is there actually something wrong with kind of the kinetics here? And then there was a group from Zhao that actually looked at the benefit and the benefit EXT trials and kind of performed an exposure response analysis. And they found that really lower palatocept concentrations didn't specifically increase the risk of acute rejection, but they did find that higher concentrations did increase the risk of serious infections, including CNS events like PTLD. PML and CNS infections. And I think that that kind of fits from what we saw from the benefit and the benefit EXT trial that, you know, the high intensity regimen was kind of not the way to go. But I think from the clinical standpoint, there is some data here to say that actual body weight is probably the right thing. I think, you know, Alicia and her group when she was in Chicago was comparing rejection and allograft function among adult renal transplant recipients at one of the centers in Chicago. And they were looking specifically at people who were converted post-transplant to bilatocept. So there were some patients who had rejection before conversion. So there's that sort of element in there. But they did find that acute rejection was significantly higher in the 13 obese patients that they had that, that had a BMI greater than 35 versus after bilatocept conversion, you know, versus the 25 non-obese patients. So there was no difference in EGFR and other outcomes, but I think from like, we're already concerned about rejection and there's already a couple of hints here to suggest that maybe the rejection rate is going to be a little bit higher in the obese population, that I feel pretty strongly we should stick with the package insert, go with actual body weight here, and really start to think about kind of augmenting the other maintenance immunosuppression regimens we use. Yeah, Dave, I'm going to have to concede. I could not find anything that would support the ideal body weight stance. Now, the adjusted body weight, um, that's kind of a question I'm going to push back to you. So, so what do you do with those patients if they gain or lose weight? So I know the package insert would suggest that if you have a, you know, a change of, of 
you know, greater than or equal to 10% that you should adjust. But when should that trigger point be, especially if you've got that Bellatacet patient who's doing great, but now they've gained 10 kilos? What's your thoughts there? Yeah, so those, you know, that's a great question. In real life, we kind of follow the letter of the law here. If the total body weight is changed by more than 10%, and that's, you know, what we'll make the dose adjustment for when the patient comes to get the infusion kind of on a monthly basis. So I think it's really complicated here to sort of figure out, well, 10% is different if it's total body weight versus if it was the adjusted body weight, maybe that means something different. I think what we've kind of learned from the benefit trials that probably giving more drug here isn't going to necessarily solve the problem, at least sort of, you know, more drug or more frequently or those sorts of things. So I think, you know, one of the things to consider, and I think, you know, even this was sort of true in, in some of the other papers that kind of show that obese patients have a slightly higher risk of rejection, particularly in kidney transplant, is that maybe we make the 10% dose adjustment rounding with bolaticeps, but we start to think about what are the other thresholds for dose reduction and maintenance therapies. Like, well, maybe I might dose reduce MMF for a cytopenia or something, but maybe I would change sort of the threshold of what that looks like in the obese patients that are on bolaticeps. Yeah, I will concede at my center, we really used Belatacept as salvage therapy. We were in the original trials for approval, but we mainly reserve it for patients who are not tolerating their CNI or having other comorbidities. And we've used it across our organ groups and we did do a pediatric as well, an adolescent for compliance reasons. So in those scenarios, as you stated, you know, what else is going on with the patient at the time that you're initiating or changing things and what's their concurrent therapy or what's been going on with them. Now I will say. One thing that I find really interesting about Belatacep, though, and these dosing strategies is the recent literature that's come out with DSA, our, our donor-specific antibody production. And I'm curious, because it seems like you have more experience at your center, have you seen a change in your DSA production in your patients with use of Belatacep, or has it sort of stayed steady? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting, you know, Columbia is a very heavy user of Belatacep, but Cornell is not a very heavy user and very infrequently will utilize the kind of a patient-specific basis. As far as I'm aware, we haven't yet, you know, anybody in the kidney group at our center has looked at DSA formation over time and what that looks like for the patients who kind of get started on a de novo or even the patients with conversion. So I think that that's going to be kind of a hot topic, and it has been kind of a hot topic in some of the recent papers that have come out looking at this. So I think with each of the iterative updates from the benefit trial and from the best trial, I think that that's like also another thing that they're sort of commenting on, but it's going to be hard because the numbers are going to be small to get three, five, seven, ten years out from the original randomization. Yeah, sorry, I went off script there with our ideal versus actual body weight and adjusted body weight debate here. But you know, I'm just curious, because that's, that's always something that comes up. And maybe it'll shake out with having weight based dosing implications. Who knows? We're loving the debate, to be honest. And this is kind of speaking from the originators of Bella, which is UCSF. We're definitely super heavy user when it comes to Bella. And in the long term wise, at least we have not been truly tracking a lot of the antibodies formations over time, because I think if you look at the patients that we're using it right from the get go, they're generally not those that are heavily sensitized, where a lot of the times it's all for cause biopsies, um, rather than sort of these routine biopsies for some of these patients. And of course, as some of the trials that later on came out with more of a use with thymo, I think that also played a part in sort of the use of Bella, how it evolved over time. And I think 
that's definitely to be determined whether really long term 10 or 15 years from now what that looks like and i think it will be definitely interesting to see once we start to see more of the these type of long term data for especially some of the centers that are doing routine biopsies in addition to some of these for cause biopsies as well too but one thing for sure, though, I can say that having been on the pharma side, the trials of how they assess obesity have definitely not quite been there. And there's been even more and more opinion pieces from especially some of the obesity experts that kind of talk about that drug manufacturer really should be required to show correct dosing instructions on their label for people with obesity when they're well-known and also when appropriate, and also to include people with obesity in clinical trials during the process as we're starting to see more and more these issues really come up. And later on down the road, if we are to see drugs for NASH or even some of the patients that we're going to get that's just going to be bigger over time, what is really obesity? Right. Nowadays, we're still using kind of the older definitions of obesity, but that's kind of changing as a demographic. It's also changing as well, too. So, but of course, that's debate sort of for another day. That's a great point. And I think at least I'm like kind of conditioned to think about obesity in terms of BMI. And I need it in my brain to like fit some linear, you know, type of dose response type thing for each of the different classes we're talking about. And I, I just don't think that it really comes down to be such a linear problem that we're talking about. We're like, you know, maybe at for Tacro or for cyclosporin, Celsep, those sorts of things, there's probably like weights along the correlation line that, you know, kind of fit in, in some sort of linear fashion, but weights at the extremes or obesity, depending on the definition, how you use it are just, it's not going to be a linear problem that just like makes perfect sense, you know, to put everybody in one specific bucket. So with that, move on from all the drugs. Do we think that trials should be required to enroll a certain proportion of obese patients for new drugs? Or do we think that might hinder development of the much needed new agents? I'll take an opinion on that. I would say, you know, I think ideally, absolutely, that all patient populations should be included that could impact pharmacokinetics, including hepatic dosing as well. You know, we typically systematically exclude CTPC patients and that type of thing. So I think that's challenging. I would definitely say for approval, I think that would be tough. But for post-marketing, I think that should be a requirement or a desired guideline for manufacturers as the use is more widespread. I just would hate to limit anything more from getting a drug that could be potentially beneficial to the market for wider use. But I definitely advocate to get data in all those patient populations for sure. I would second that. I think it'd be really nice to have kind of everybody included in the trial. I think kind of at a bare minimum, having some sort of sensitivity or like even like some post hoc analysis of like, hey, here's the outcome stratified by BMI category might be something that, you know, we could potentially meet in the middle on so that at least the data is available. And I think, you know, if you have randomized data that otherwise just be very quickly chopped up into three different groups. Obviously, we're not going to have power, you know, in order to stratify patients into these different things. And we could argue about, is it less than 30, greater than 30 BMI or some other sort of different categories. But I think just having 
some sort of comment about what obesity would do to it. And I think, you know, this comes up in lots of the other drug classes too. And, you know, we've talked about DOACs and obesity and those sorts of things. And there's been lots of published about that. Like, I feel like it comes up in a lot of the drug class approvals because this is just sort of part of the patients that we're seeing. But I feel like I would advocate for that to be a more common realization when you're reading you know, whatever paper it is of like, hey, we looked at it based on age and weight and like a couple of other sort of sensitivity type analyses. Yeah, great points. I think you both have some very insightful thoughts on how to meet this unmet need in our transplant literature. Now we will move on to our last preposition for our debate today, and that is that dosing by ideal body weight or adjusted body weight leads to more cost-effective patient care when compared to dosing by total body weight. Who wants to jump into this pool first? You want to well, take your stance? I can already see from you know across the Zoom here, you're jumping up and down because this will be one that you are going to win. I th- you know I think it makes a lot of sense. If you're going to utilize less drug for drugs that cost lots of money, you're going to save dollars and cents. I think it gets complicated, you know, like when we add things to like the formulary and therapeutics committee or, you know, pharmacy and therapeutics committee, whatever you want to call it, you know, sometimes it's like a little bit less sophisticated than you want it to be where, you know, we currently spend X on this drug. And if we change the strategy, we're going to do it, it'll be Y. And then we're going to take the difference and claim that as our cost savings. And I think part of that is very complicated. And those are the things that we were talking about earlier on in the debate is, well, what happens if, for example, we changed our dosing of thymo down to ideal body weight, now we're dealing with one additional episode of projection per X number of patients, does that sort of downstream have some kind of impact on cost-effective care rather than just like straight-up cost? And I think, you know, that's a hard question to answer, but certainly I think on the surface, you are going to have a delta that you can claim on your year-end review if, if you start utilizing less thymo and less bella. I would agree with that. And I think, you know, just those normal strategies to not use partial vials and to round doses and to appropriately implement protocols that you can study is a way to do it. And I would encourage folks that aren't pushing some of their 340B stuff to the outpatient side to change and increase their reimbursement. I think that's helpful as well. Being able to dose these things on the outpatient side and get some of that revenue back if you are a, a hospital that can do that is definitely beneficial. But Being able to choose between adjusted ideal versus an actual body weight, you know, you could make an argument that potentially you're losing more money if you use actual body weight in the hospital out of your, you know, your bucket of money that you get for the transplant. But if you're using an ideal body weight on the outpatient side, you may have less reimbursement for that drug as well. But I don't think that should be an argument since I'm the ideal body weight person specifically for thymo to push your doses on the outpatient side. But you also have to take that into consideration when you do your calculations for cost savings initiatives, right? So if you're going to not only switch to ideal body weight dosing, but then also try to move more of your doses outpatient, you have to sort of calculate that and make sure that you're measuring in your vials so you don't come up short at the end of the year. But I think that in general, you know, obesity or increased body weight is something that's in our transplant populations and we have to manage it. And, you know, I think we're behind suit a bit in transplant by not having specific guidelines to help us adjust for these medications. You know, the oncology group has gotten on board and has guidelines for chemotherapy. The critical care group recently published, I think two years ago, looking at dosing of drugs in the ICU. 
the infectious disease folks have their act together. So I think this could be a big call for transplant folks to do that. And then also maybe put in some of these strategies for cost savings initiatives that could benefit patient populations and transplant programs across the country. That's a shameless plug for all those big leaders in solid organ transplant to put something together. That's a great point, Nicole. And I think, you know, that's actually like a really great area, I think, for pharmacists to sort of get involved in terms of prospective research questions. You know, there's a lot of these questions that are the same question with different drugs in kind of the same populations. It's one of those things where like, we just need some more manpower and some more grant dollars kind of spent on it. Because I think, you know, one of the limitations, and I think, you know, that was something we were going to get into is like, whether or not there should be guidelines for obesity-based dosing. But I think you know, right now, like, well, what would the guidelines say? Would A lot of these things are going to be like, you know, 3C type recommendations in a sense, because there's not a tremendous amount of data to tell you, you know, what to do kind of one way or another. I would love to have guidelines for obesity. I'd love to have guidelines for high risk patients in terms of high immunologic risk or ABO incompatible trans, like all of these things are questions that we want to know the answer to, but we're somewhat limited, you know, in the current sense of of, uh, well, you know, we've got one trial here in that particular patient population at these particular weights or in the background of this maintenance regimen. So it's very hard. You know, the external validity of a lot of these things is difficult. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's probably a more of a Delphi consensus type of guideline versus trials. We, we definitely are missing a lot of the data or we have abstract data that hasn't gone to full publication. So that can be definitely really challenging. And I think the other sort of wrench that now comes into it that I'm not sure if your center has experienced is what do you do with all of these new drugs like GLP-1s that are going to potentially impact, you know, absorption and maybe change the kinetics of all these drugs further, especially as we're getting new treatments for weight loss there. And, you know, how quickly is that going to change the landscape within solid organ transplant? It's a conundrum. I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, even based on some of the new warnings that have come out for things like GLPs and the SGLT2 inhibitors in their use at the time of surgery, these are all things that are already starting to kind of leak into some of the decision making that you're kind of walking the team through in the perioperative space. You know, I think kind of back to the original question in terms of cost savings. I think it's very likely that if you're utilizing less of the drugs, you'll be able to save more money. You know, the point about the guidelines, I think the way you put it is actually sort of the best way is that there's probably room for there to be like a consensus document among solid organ transplant providers or pharmacists or those sorts of things to sort of come up with, you know, hey, let's take a look at what did we already know from what's in the literature and then we can sort of build from there. And even kind of in those documents, usually there's some proposition for like, hey, these are the specific research areas that should be focused on in the next five years or 10 years or something to try and answer some of the critical questions that we have. Yeah, I agree. I think having a consensus document is probably the way to go, and especially to kind of provide some insight into some of those scenarios that we just don't know how to answer and that we get some further research. And also we might be able to wheel out some of these clinical conundrums where it's a 50-50 split and it's just very center specific and maybe that just needs to shake out. But it would be nice to be able to have a clearer vision, at least across the country, you know, with UNOS having new metrics associated with their SRTR data and extending their outcomes further out, having more consistent practices with immunosuppression could potentially help rein in that one variable that is usually not really seen in that data to look and compare centers for one another. But, you know, solid organ transplant, I feel like it's a custom made home. Each 
individual transplant center has their own set of cabinets and they definitely have all the appliances. It just doesn't, you know, you don't know what grade of appliances are and how up to date they are. So these custom homes, it's challenging in these neighborhoods to really do a true compare and contrast, but maybe the consensus would be the way to go. Really want to thank you both for being a part of this amazing podcast, providing us with some really stimulating debates and also your expertise in general. And Kim and I can definitely attest to how much we really enjoyed this podcast. It's actually been super stimulating. And Kim and I were talking in the background that we're like totally nerding out and geeking out as you guys are talking. So don't worry. We did too when we talked last week, or at least I did. I don't know about Dave. He probably doesn't nerd out, but I totally nerd out. I'm kind of a nerd at baseline, so it's it's more <laughs> unusual to not be in that state. So as a part of mTOR, you know, thank you all for being a part of this podcast and really appreciate the time that it takes for you guys to prepare and also to have state friendly and definitely no blood spilled at this particular debate arena. So thank you all both. But on behalf of our committee and also on behalf of our audiences, uh, thank you. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.